Jenny's just apologised for having me on the platform so early. So, just thank you for that. Well, this will be the final time I'll speak to you this year. Thank you for all your fellowship with me and for the joy that we have, Jill and I, in coming down Sunday by Sunday. And we just wish you a Merry Christmas. Do trust that you will have a, a great time with your families. Our concluding reading is from Colossians 4, and we're going to read from verse 7. We read a couple of these verses last week. And today we're going to look at unsung heroes of the early church. Unsung heroes of the early church. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Herapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. We look to the Lord for his blessing on his word. I want to begin this morning, and perhaps you could bring the text up again, Hazel, if that's possible. Um, I want to begin this morning not by looking at Tychicus, whom we thought about last week, but to look initially at this character, Onesimus, who is called here our faithful and dear brother. And he is one of you. He is also a Gentile. Now, accompanying the, the book to you, the letter of Colossae, this particular letter, was the little book of Philemon. And Paul addressed a personal letter to Philemon, which is concerned primarily about Onesimus. Onesimus, his name, mean, his name means profitable, but he was a runaway slave. 
he had run away from Philemon. And Paul met him in Rome and led him to the Lord. And when you think about the transforming power of the Lord Jesus, it's, it's just great, isn't it? I mean, it sounds terrific that here's a runaway slave who's been restored to his master and is referred to here as a faithful and dear brother. This is the transforming power of the Lord Jesus. But you and I were all rascals. Maybe some of us still are, you know. But, you know, we were all rascals until the Lord stepped into our lives. And we're not the same people now, or I trust we're not the same people now, as we were before we met the Lord. And having met him, he makes this change. He, he transforms our living into something that once it wasn't, because we were all selfish and all self-absorbed. Indeed, that's what's primarily wrong with the world in our generation. Everybody's thinking about themselves and not thinking about others. And the transforming power of Christ brings us into this relationship with God that we become brothers and sisters. And this man, Onesimus, who was unprofitable, and distinct from his name, having run away from Philemon, he is sent back to Philemon, as it says here, as our faithful and dear brother. And Paul just reminds the church at Colossae, he is one of you. So you welcome him back, even though he's been a runaway slave. You welcome him back on the, on the uh, reality of what Christ has done in his life. That he's made him a different person and transformed him and brought him into the fellowship with the rest of the brothers. Martin Luther, I quite often read Luther because he's, he's got a way of uh, saying things that make an impression on me. He's very succinct. He, he calls James, for example, the epistle of straw because he doesn't agree with most of what James says. But uh, talking about Onesimus, he just says this, we are all God's Onesimuses. We are all God's Onesimuses. All been transformed because of the love and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. Then the, another Gentile we're introduced to is Aristarchus, who's mentioned here in the following verse. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings. Now, interesting enough, um, Aristarchus didn't come from Colossae. He came from Thessalonica in Macedonia. He's mentioned twice in the book of the Acts. He's mentioned in Acts 19 and Acts 20. I'll let you look at those references yourselves. That's some homework for you, Judith and Roy. But uh, I know you like following these things up. But Here's this Gentile man who doesn't know these fellow Christians in Colossae. He's never met them because he's from Thessalonica. And yet he sends his greetings. And I've been thinking a lot this week about the, the breadth of Christian fellowship. You know, we get a lot of cards at Christmas from people all over the country and, and from various other places as well. And just to recognize that we are all one in Christ that this that Christ has done is, is ongoing and, and terrific. And here is Aristarchus, this fellow Gentile, and he's just sending them his greetings. And then in passing, as does Mark, 
the cousin of Barnabas. Now you may know the story of Mark, but John Mark, as he's called elsewhere in the book of the Acts, originally began to travel with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And he had been traveling with them for some time. And then he suddenly decided that missionary work wasn't for him and he went back to his home country and left Paul and Barnabas. And that really upset Paul. Barnabas not so much because, as the scripture says here, Mark was his cousin. But he went back. And the apostle Paul said to Barnabas, whenever Barnabas said, I want to take Mark with us again at the end of Acts chapter 15. Paul said to, to Barnabas, he's not coming. You know, he's deserted us once and he's not coming. And it caused such friction between Barnabas and Paul that they split up. So this great missionary team that had done such good work for the Lord had a row. And the word which is actually used of the row between them as a paroxysm. You know, they were beside themselves, raging at one another. And it just shows how careful we need to be in Christian fellowship, that we don't fall out, that there isn't a breakdown in relationship, because it's very damaging to both the church and its testimony. And Paul and Barnabas decided to form two new missionary teams, And such is the grace of God that Barnabas went with John Mark and he went to Cyprus and began to preach throughout Cyprus where Paul and he had originally visited. And Paul took a guy called Silas and they formed a second missionary team. And then because Luke is the author of the book of the Acts, it's the story of Paul and Silas that we follow from Acts 16 onwards. So... You know, in spite of the fact that there's a row between Paul and Barnabas, which is not recommended, God formed two missionary teams where there was just one before. And God's good at that. You know, it's just as well that he patches things up and does things differently from us. And he takes Paul, uh, Barnabas and John Mark to Cyprus. Now, just to follow up on that, Mark's gospel the Gospel of Mark, which was probably one of the earliest of Christian literature, probably penned between A.D. 40 and A.D. 50. John Mark is responsible for Mark's Gospel. So how much we owe to this character who Paul had written off effectively. But then you look carefully at what he says here. As does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, you have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. So Paul's changing his tune. And when you come to his letter to Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, in chapter 4, he talks about John Mark as being valuable to him. So there's been restoration. And this is really another major point that arises from John Mark's life. We need to restore fellowship. In spite of the fact that uh, he was the the one that caused the breakup between Paul and Barnabas because of Paul's intransigence, nevertheless, later on in life, he was restored to the Apostle Paul and was valuable to him, as Paul says when he's writing to Timothy. You know, 
I suspect there may be somebody here this morning and you feel because of something that happened in a relationship some time ago that God has written you off. God doesn't do that. God, God specializes in restoration. You know, that's what God does. He, he restores us to him. He brings us back to him so that we can be functionally useful again. Some of you may know the name Alan Redpath. And some years ago, Alan Redpath was greatly used of the Lord. He was the minister in Duke Street, Richmond, which is probably the most significant Baptist church in the country. And he was there for many years. But one of the things that Alan Redpath used to say, and I personally disagreed with him, he used to say, I'm living in God's second best. I'm living in God's second best. And yet his ministry was used so widely by the Lord, particularly the last 30 years of his preaching. But this was his assessment. And I think to some degree, he overlooked the fact, and I tremble to say this because he was a far better preacher than I'll ever be, but he overlooked the fact that God specializes in restoration and his restoration is never second best. You understand that? His restoration is part of what God does in our life to refunction us for his purpose and in his usefulness. So John Mark's a great example of that in the New Testament. And if you just trace his history, and I've really enjoyed this this past week, just looking through these various characters. If you trace his history, just remember when you read Mark's Gospel that you're reading the, the work of a man who, when he was a young man, actively deserted Paul and Barnabas and went back to his roots. God restored him and used him for wider purposes than you can think of. Then you have this character, Jesus, who is called Justice. This is the only time he's mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus called Justice. What do you think the word justice means? Yeah. He was a just man. And it's good to have that label, isn't it? He's obviously a Jew, Jesus. But called justice. And there was something about him, something in his character, which demonstrated that he was just in his dealings. I want to tell you a story about a man I knew once called John Reed. John Reed was based in Crediton and ran a, ran a seed-selling business to various farmers and so on, right through Devon and North Somerset and various other places. I stayed with Mr. John, as he was called. I stayed with him a number of times in his home. And John Reed was always recognized as being absolutely straight. I took his funeral and I met numerous farmers at his funeral and I couldn't tell you how many of them said he was absolutely straight. What he said he would do, he did. And I suppose the name Just or Justice could have been applied to John Reed. He was quite austere, quite a difficult man to get close to and get to know. 
But as I say, I stayed in his home a few times and got to know him quite well. And his austerity, or apparent austerity, was very much the front that he presented to people. You know, this was the sort of man he was. But I was so struck with that. And it's years and years ago I took his funeral. But to be known as someone who was absolutely straight, shouldn't that be each of us as Christians? You know, straight in our dealings with folk. No sort of side to us. No sort of smarminess. But recognizing our responsibility to one another to be straight and to share that in such a way that it makes a difference. So it's only here in the New Testament that he's mentioned. There's also something else here. You'll notice that the following phrase, these are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. I overlooked that in my first reading of the passage. But it's, it's right at the core of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. They have proved a comfort to me. I looked up the word Sometimes this happens when you're reading the scripture and you know you just think, I wonder what that's really about. And the word which is translated comfort here is used in medicine. And it just means a soothing. So it was a, a medication which was applied to the body and it brought a, had a soothing influence. And it's a remarkable word for the Apostle Paul to use. It's the only time he uses this word in the New Testament. And you know how much of the New Testament he wrote. And yet this is the only time he uses this phrase. They have proved a comfort to me, a soothing, an encouragement. The only Jews I have with me. I think we forget sometimes that in the early church, the original 3,000 who came to faith in Christ were almost exclusively Jewish. So those who came to faith in Acts chapter 2 were almost exclusively Jewish. They were there at the Passover. They were at um, the Passover feast at the time whenever Peter was preaching, and they were there because they were Jews. But they were converted when they came to Christ. And the early part of the, Old, of the New Testament in the book of the Acts, right up until Acts 10, is primarily directed to Jews. So Peter's preaching, he was preaching in the temple, and it was almost exclusively to Jews. So I want you to think about this for a minute, because it's, it's hugely important. So you have maybe, in the early time, uh, uh, the book of the Acts covers about 30 years. So when you're reading Acts, and you read through to chapter 28, you've covered 30 years of church history. And... In those first 30 years, until the persecution which arose under Saul of Tarsus, who later became Paul the Apostle, until that persecution arose, almost all Christians were Jews. And then Paul was led of the Lord to begin preaching to you and me, to Gentiles. And you will see immediately that there was a, a, an amazing possibility of the church to be split of those who were Jews and were converts and became Christians, 
to say, well, you know, we're more significant, we're more important than you guys who are Gentiles, you're come-afters, you're sort of late arrivals, you're not really of such significance. But Paul demonstrates and emphasizes, particularly in the epistle to the Galatians, that Jews and Gentiles are of no difference because all become Christians. We become new people in Christ. So it doesn't matter whether you're of a Jewish background or a Gentile background. Whenever you become a Christian, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now just stay with me for a minute because I know this is ancient history, but it's important. After that, during those early years, and the church began to develop, when the Jews were persecuted, because that was primarily, the persecution began in Jerusalem and then in Judea, and the Jewish people were scattered. Those who had become Christians were scattered. Where were they to go to? So they were received into Gentile churches or churches that were primarily composed of ex-Gentiles. And during that period, in the sort of 15 years, immediately after this persecution arose, Christianity became known, and get this, as the religion of the open door. The religion of the open door. Because those who were Gentiles received the Jewish Christians into their homes, into their lives, into their churches. And it was remarkable, again, how God used that persecution which arose under Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, to bring together in real terms those who were Jews, those who were Christians within the same churches. Because as the Jews fled the persecutions, they were received into these Gentile homes and Gentile churches. The religion of the open door. I was very interested in church history when I was doing my degree years and years and years ago. I'm now church history, but you know, way back then, it, it was so fascinating to me just to see how God used these various things, which you would think were tragedies. God used them to establish the church and to develop the church, and it's still the same today. You know, our brothers and sisters who are suffering in the Middle East and elsewhere um, and have had desperate times, lost their families, lost their homes, lost their businesses and so on, still happening even as I speak to you, particularly in Pakistan and various other countries similar to that. The, the whole function of the, of the movement of Christians is that they come together in Christ. Whatever's happening in, the, in their larger experience, because they know the Lord Jesus, they're brought into relationship with other Christians that they haven't previously known. And that's our responsibility. That's our ongoing responsibility to our brothers and sisters, to provide for their needs as far as possible and also to relate to their situation so that they may recognize the, the true fellowship that we have in Christ the third time I went to Romania, I went to uh, Bucharest and to various Baptist churches in that particular city. And I flew into Bucharest and I didn't know anybody there. But uh, there were two fellows who were in the crowd that were welcoming people off the aircraft. And almost immediately I sensed that these were two guys who were looking for me. 
So I wandered up to him and said, are you looking for... He said, we couldn't spell your name. Otherwise, we'd have had a card with your name on it. And they both hugged me. And said, you're welcome, brother. Didn't know them from Adam. Stayed in their homes for a fortnight. Got to know them. And brothers of mine in Christ. Maybe you've been on holiday. You've gone to a church while you've been on holiday. And had that sense of belonging. That's really what the Apostle's talking about here. You know, they became a comfort to me. They were, they were part of my soothing experience of God in my life because of who these particular fellows were. And then we're introduced in a larger section to this man, Epaphras. And you'll see the, the emphasis here. He's one of you. So again, he was from their Colossian church. And the servant of Christ Jesus. Everywhere we go, we have a dual appellation. You know, there's a place we're from. I'm from Newton Ards in Northern Ireland. Really proud of it. You've never heard of it. Great place to be brought up. But I'm also, I trust, a servant of Christ Jesus. And that's the link. You know, we're all here to serve the Lord. Not to be self-interested. And what Jenny said was so true. You know, we've each been given different gifts. Nobody here who doesn't have a gift. And we're expected to use it for the furtherance of the kingdom, as Epaphras was doing. He obviously had a particular gift in prayer, and I don't have time to develop that this morning. But this man, one of you, and a servant of Christ. One of you, a servant of Christ. Always wrestling in prayer. There's actually a word left out here in the NIV translation. Always wrestling in prayer for all of you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Always wrestling in prayer for all of you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I have a confession to make. I don't know much about this wrestling in prayer. There been times in my life when I've experienced it. But I don't know much about it. It was a life habit for Epaphras. Always wrestling in prayer. The word could be translated laboring. The word could be translated agonizing. The word could be translated contending. That's probably its prime usage here. Contending in prayer. This was a a real issue as far as Epaphras was concerned. He was away from Colossae. He had been ill, as we discover in another part of um, Paul's writings. He had been ill. Uh, Paul hadn't been able to heal him. He was still ill. Paul left him. But this man, Epaphras, was characterized in his life by wrestling in prayer. I've mentioned John Hyde of India who I've mentioned before to you. He, he was a remarkable character. He wasn't any sort of a preacher. He was a lousy preacher. But he saw thousands of people converted. Wrestling in prayer. 
Tori and Alexander, Tori being the preacher, Alexander being the singing. You know Alexander's hymns? Maybe you don't. It's an old hymn book. But Alexander's hymns were hymns that Alexander used to sing whenever Tory, R.A. Tory, was preaching. And they were up in Shropshire. And John Hyde was back on a furlough, back from India on a furlough, and he was in Bristol. And they were having a terrible time. Many, many people coming to the, the services that Tory and Alexander were holding. But nobody was getting converted. Nobody was being saved, and they were really frustrated by that. And they felt there was some sort of barrier, and they didn't know what it was. And somebody told them that John Hyde was back from India, and he was in Bristol. And they said, well, get him to pray. And John Hyde rode his horse from Bristol to the middle of Shropshire, and he spent one night with Tory and Alexander. And he prayed in a prayer meeting. And he said three words. Father. And then a few minutes later, Oh, Father. And that night some hundreds of people came to Christ. You know, we pay lip service to prayer and what it means. But most of my time when I'm praying, I'm just presenting the Lord with a series of requests. Wrestling in prayer. Why was he doing that? That you might stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you. And it's linked back to this phrase, wrestling in prayer. He's working hard for you. Great to have something like that in our church fellowship. Here's the man with the smallest private practice in the Roman world. The smallest private practice in the Roman world. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor. We have no idea how much we owe to Luke. How much the New Testament wouldn't have been written if Luke hadn't ministered his doctoring to the Apostle Paul. We know that Paul was very frail. We know he had real eye problems. We're told that from his own letters. We know that his bodily presence, and I quote, was weak and contemptible. But Luke took him on as a private patient and minister to him. There's a book which I read years ago. It's primarily fiction, written by, I can't remember. It's called Dear and Glorious Physician. It's a novel, but it has had a lot of historical research, and it's about Luke the physician and his travels with the Apostle Paul. It's quite remarkable. And if you get a chance and you come across it anywhere, just have a read on it. You'll enjoy it as a story apart from anything else. But one of the things, Taylor Caldwell is the author. Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, Taylor Caldwell. One of the things that she emphasizes again and again is his care for the Apostle Paul. 
just his care, the way he, he looked after him, the way he ministered to him, the various fevers that the apostle had and so forth and so on, which she discovered in her research. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor. And Demas. Demas has a bad reputation in Scripture because he deserted the apostle and went to Thessalonica at the time whenever Paul's imprisonment was getting critical. And he writes to Timothy and says, Demas has forsaken me. What a word. Demas has forsaken me and gone to Thessalonica. Because he loved this present age. It was almost as though these fellows that were accompanying Paul in his imprisonment were worried about losing their lives under the same axe or sword that Nero applied to the neck of the Apostle Paul. And in his latter days, the the epistles to Timothy uh, were written probably in the last five weeks of Paul's life. And Demas during that time deserted him and went to Thessalonica. Not a pleasant word to have written about. Our dear friend Luke and Demas send greetings. And just as I close, this lady, Nympha. Do you know any? Have you ever met anybody called Nympha? You know, there's a lot of biblical names or are prominent, Rachel, Rebecca, so forth and so on. I've never met anybody called Nympha. And when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask about her. You know, I, I just really want to know what the church was like that met in her house. There's a lot of um, emphasis in the New Testament on house churches. The reason for that being was there were no by and large, there were no buildings that were set apart for church services. So there weren't any what we call churches around the place. The countryside wasn't dotted with churches. There were no Anglican churches. You know, that started building in 1066 and thereafter. Um, So you met where you could. And there was a church an ecclesia which met at Nympha's house. Can you think of any better use for your house than to have a church meeting in it? We talk about house groups. Good things. Because they're in the community. And they themselves bear a witness. I was talking to a lady the other day when I was walking down into Wellington. And she said, I'm just going to my house group. And I hadn't enough sense to ask her where it was. She was, you know, talking about her faith and the, and the fact that she loves the Lord. Lives just across the road. But I suppose, in a sense, if we have a Christian home, then there's a small bit of the church in the house. Who knows what influence that might have? Some of you dear folk are the only Christian in your household. And it's a hard slog. But who knows what influence you're having? The church that met in her house, Nympha. And then the final character who's mentioned here is Archippus. 
I often wonder if he was called Archie. I suspect he probably was. He's mentioned again in the letter to Philemon. And the way he's mentioned in the letter to Philemon makes me think he was probably Philemon's son. Now, you may take odds with that. That's fine. But I think that's probably who he was. So here's another Gentile. And Paul gives a personal message to him here. See to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. What does that tell you about Archippus? He was a bit indolent. He was less than committed. Sometimes he was inclined to go through the motions. I mean, this is quite a strong rebuke here. See to it, you know. Somebody said that to me, I'd sort of sit up and take notice. Must have been a bit of embarrassment because this letter would have been read publicly in the church at Colossae. See to it, you know. Well, what's coming next? Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. And I close with this this morning. Any work that we do within our church fellowship should be something we're conscious of receiving as from the Lord. Not something that we took the notion of doing, but something that we do because we're aware the Lord wants me to do this, you know. My father started a children's meeting when I was in my church at home. And he said to me when I was about 14, he said, you need to get involved in this. You know, he didn't ask me. He told me, you need to get involved in this. And I said, I can't be bothered. He said, that's the thing that really worries me. So I thought about it for a day or two. It was on a Thursday night. And I'd rather play snooker on a Thursday night. And I said to him about a month later, I said, I think I better get involved in the children's meeting. 150 screaming kids most of the time. But the amount I learnt just by being involved for those three, three and a half years. Because some of them were really lovable. Some of them were like me, they're just wee rascals. But some of them were really lovable. Some of them came to the Lord. We had a man who used to come, my dad used to invite him frequently to preach called Jimmy Murphy. And he was about five foot four. And he used to tell stories. He'd just tell a story. I remember one he told about a wee fellow who was told to go straight to where his mother had sent him. And he had a piece. Do you know what a piece is? Jam sandwich. He had a jam sandwich stuffed up his shirt and he decided he was going to climb a tree instead of going straight to wherever he was supposed to be going. And of course the jam sandwich got squashed and it was all over the inside of his shirt and all over him. So he couldn't really eat it. And when he went back home to his mum, he said, Mum, I'm really hungry. And she said, well, what happened to the jam sandwich? What happened to your piece? Uh, well, uh, 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 and then he lied about it. And I can remember that story yet. I was 14, that's 60 years ago. 
the danger of being caught out in lying. Jimmy Murphy. And I don't know how many children were converted through Jimmy's ministry. That was all he did. He just spoke at children's meetings. What is the thing that the Lord has asked you to do around here? The thing you're conscious of the Lord asking you to do. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we just praise you for these brothers and sisters that are mentioned in this little passage at the end of Colossians. And we thank you for the simple lessons that are so evident in their lives. And we pray that we may be men and women who, who do what you want us to do. We don't make excuses, but who just commit to the various tasks that you have set before us and that are really self-evident that they're part of our responsibility. I want to recognize this morning that the secular work you give us is part of our full-time service for you. I want to have an awareness that you give us particular skills in the wider world that are to be used for you. And we ask you to help us to do that this week and in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.